Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Five Hole Fantasy Hockey Podcasts. We're your hosts today, TJ, Zach, and Raj. Hey there. Hey, hey, hey. So today we got your GM's toolbox, a fantasy toolbox. We're going to be talking about how we dissect players, or not even players, just scenarios, and what we use, the methodology behind what we do to get to our conclusions. You see, it would be this mat that you would put on the floor and would have different conclusions written on it that you could jump to. If you want to find us, we're on Twitter at FHF Hockey. You can join the Fantasy Hockey Discord. Before we went into it, I wanted to give a shout out to NWL and address the dorks drama because Grizz brought up a pretty good point in the Discord. You know, last episode I said going prospects only was like a dork move. And it is. Like if that's what you do year over year. But I didn't want to (laughs) push the narrative away from just prospects because i like prospects man so you know if you're a builder that's fine but definitely have a plan to start competing love my dorks but you guys are dorks nerds get those nerds anyway let's get into news around the league lots of hirings lots of firings so far we got rick bonus hired in winnipeg i'm curious what you guys think about this one rick bonus i think he's the oldest coach in the league you know just up and down history not the best showing with Dallas, but not bad. Winnipeg was swinging for the fences with Barry Trotz. Now you got Rick Bonus. I don't know. What do you think? Well, Barry Trotz said he didn't want to coach anywhere this year, so nowhere would have been the answer. You know, uh, <laughs> with with Bonus, uh, I I'm not impressed by the by the Jets. That that's whole thing. I don't I don't think that Bonus is going to be able to go in there and and fix their problems. I think they're you know top-of-the-line players, uh, some of who that are play- paid too much, like Blake Wheelers and stuff like that, are eating up cap and not producing because they're getting older. So I don't think that bonus is going to make that big of a difference, especially on you know the fantasy landscape. You know, your Kyle Connor is still going to be your best player. Like, that's just the way it is. And I don't see much else going on. I, I heard a good take on it. Uh, Elliot on 32 Thoughts had a good one. Just in terms of like they were shooting for the ultimate coach, right? Like Trotz would have been the perfect story, the perfect coach, and everyone would have been stoked. But the truth of the matter is like Winnipeg's been a fucking mess for a couple of years. Like just in terms of it's just been a gong show, right? Like going back to the line, all the way back to line A. It's just been kind of yeah. like a bunch of really good players managing to win. They got a killer goalie. Defense fell apart, but somehow they managed to keep it together. But the one thing about bonus is that's what happened in Dallas, right? Like he came in because the coach was getting hammered or whatever the fuck he was doing, and he got fired out of nowhere. And he came in and he really did. He settled down Dallas. So I think bonus is probably what they need, as boring as it is, for a year or two until Trotz wants to get back to coaching. Fantasy wise, I think Wheeler was. 60 points in 65 games. So he didn't end up with a terrible season, like below what we're used to. But if he was, you know, a 75, 80 point guy, what more do you want out of a guy at that age? Right. So 
I think they'll they'll stabilize a little bit. Like PLD has been all over the map in terms of production and showed signs of starting to fit in and that. So I think bonus will at least steady the ship until they can figure their stuff out. So I think I don't think it'll hurt. Not as good cool as trots, but I don't think it'll actually hurt too much. All right, what was your question? What do you think we get out of a Hellebuck this year? I think that's a big question. Hellebuck has been so, you know, topsy-turvy, like he's really good, and then the the bad is just so fucking bad. What in the world are we going to get? Is it going to be this four-goal against Connor Hellebuck that we've been used to seeing this past year? Well, that's one thing Bonus is known for is his defensive structure is the two things I remember from his time in Dallas was the fact that he rolled lines and it, it's shown here. I think it was Ian Gooding wrote a take on uh, what he thinks is going to happen. Like the top forward with average time on ice was Joe Pavelski in 18 and a half under bonus. Mm-hmm. Um, Kyle Connor had almost 22 minutes. So I, I wonder if he carries that kind of technique into Winnipeg, which would be brutal. I remember Paul Maurice was talking about rolling lines at one point, and I was I was afraid of it. You're going from Dallas, where you had Klingberg and Heiskanen, and now you like your top D man is Neil Pionk, Josh Morrissey. It's going to be tough. Uh, he'll he'll try his best, I think, to make things easier on Connor Hellebuck. And if a defensive presence, you know, if that happens, obviously Hellebuck's going to benefit there. Yeah, I think you'll see Pionk slide more into the the banger part of his game and lose even more points possibly. And the flip side of that is look at Jason Robertson under under bonus. I mean, rookie young guy, one of the best breakout stories of the league. That's because Jason Robertson was going to do that no matter what, no matter who the coach was. He was going to make it so you can't not play. (laughs) Sure, but I mean, that's 18 minutes a game, right? Like It's not like bonus is holding back guys who can score, so I wouldn't be worried about that, except for I think the D might get more defensive is, is what I think might happen. Yeah, I think it, like on a micro level, that's going to be tough. This offseason is going to decide a lot of it. Like PLD is already talking about, you know, a year from now, he's probably going to test free agency, which is such a strange thing to to shout out this far out. Yeah, like, it's bullshit. Hey, you know, in, in two years, I'm probably not going to be on your team. So, all right, I'm going to see you in the hallway for the next two years. Weird, really weird. Uh, Blake Wheeler's on the trade block. It could be a very different team. Shifley had some things to say in his exit interviews, like, I want to know where the team's headed, that kind of thing. So, Do you blame him? That locker room's infected right now, and I'd love to you know, get to the bottom of it or at least get some stories out of it. But it's rough waters in Winnipeg right here. I wonder if rolling lines is the right answer. Rolling lines is like communism. <laughs> I mean, it, it bulks up the media. It works on paper. You know, you got higher, higher floors but lower ceilings. All right, uh, Jim Montgomery was in Dallas. He stepped down. Now he's in Boston. So I really don't know what to make of this one either. I have no idea what's going on there. But uh, what do you guys think? Jim Montgomery in Boston. Talk about another gong show. Like There's more of an injury and age situation there this year. But I don't know. I think that one was weird to me. That's that Of, of all of them, uh, to me, that was the most like just kind of why. I don't really know what to expect other than sort of a similar thing. There's going to be a lot of crap going on. There's going to be, you know, the stars are injured to begin the season and also getting older and, you know, who's playing the left wing, who's line two, all, all kinds of stuff. So I think they've really, like in both of those situations, the the one thing both guys have is they're old and crusty and just can deal with it. That's one nice thing about this year in Boston, it, for Jim Montgomery at least, 
and maybe nice is a weird word for it, but you know, he, he gets to go into it, not getting Brad Marchand, not getting Charlie McAvoy until around Christmas, maybe. And, uh, you know, he's without Grizz. Like he's going to see, you know, the bare bones of what this team has. He's going to find his guys. And then you're adding two superstars to the mix right around Christmas. So I'm, I'm excited to see how Montgomery handles this one. I think expectations will be pretty low, you know, just based on that, um, you know, you're you're losing two of your best players for a while. And I don't know if Marchand, or uh, not Marchand, but Bergeron has even signed yet. Krejci's talking to him. He might come back. Like, it's going to be a really weird season for Boston, like top, top to bottom. Second half is going to be so different than the first half in Boston. True. Man, I missed David Krejci last year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love. I do. He was he was one of your guys, man. Yeah, he's one of my fucking guys. I love David Krejci. He's the man. Raj, how long have we been calling for Boston's decline, though? And we've been right too. That's the thing. I mean, it's been years since we've been saying like, "Hey, they're getting older. Get ready to see this." And they're still in like playoff Boston, but their exit keeps getting sooner and sooner. It is happening. The decline is. Like, it's visually there. You're watching it happen over these years because they're not changing, you know, their core. They're not changing their team. They're sticking with, you know, the big old hay bale and just, you know, trotting the same people out there. They're not changing with the times. And they're getting older. Soon, they're not going to make the playoffs. They're going to be a Boston list playoffs. Tell you. And it could be next year. I don't think anyone is scared to play Boston this year. Like in the in the past, even up to last year, like especially Toronto was like, we don't want to play Boston. We don't we don't want to f- face Boston in the playoffs. And this year is just like, yeah, bring it on. Like I don't think you can understate. Like they had pretty much the best goalie tandem in the league for a few years in a row, and then all of a sudden they're both gone. Not that Swayman's bad, but let me present you with a couple facts. All right, and you know they're going to point in a certain direction. And I want them to point in that direction, but I'm not making any conclusions here. All right, we went from Jake DeBrusque asking for a trade, uh, Patrice Bergeron maybe retiring, Bruce Cassidy gets fired, then Patrice Bergeron says he's going to maybe come back, and then just in these last couple days, Jake DeBrusque says, I'd be okay not getting traded anymore. He, t- he withdrew his his trade request. All in that time, during Bruce Cassidy's kind of you know twilight, Boston was getting worse was Bruce Cassidy the cancer here? I don't know if Boston is on the decline or if they just didn't give a shit about Bruce Cassidy anymore. You know what I mean? So like maybe next year we see big Boston back because Bruce Cassidy was the reason. Maybe. I'm not saying that Bruce Cassidy wasn't a problem, but I don't buy that. Yeah. I mean, it's just as it's just as likely that Jake DeBrus got told, hey, Jake, we're going to trade you, but like it's going to be to Arizona for Jacob Chikrin. You know what I mean? And he was like, hey, wait a minute, guys. Yeah. That sounds bad. I think it's a little of column A, little of column B, you know? Like, I don't think that. Yeah. I think the coach has definitely become a scapegoat, and may, maybe that's all they need. But you can't deny, like, Bergeron is on the brink of retiring. Half the team's injured. The two great goalies are gone. It's definitely both things, I think. It might make for some uh, late round picks if people are just totally scared off of the injured players and just let them slide into, you know, rounds eight, nine or whatever, something like that. You pick up a a Marchand for the second half of the season. That's that's still a good pick if it starts to fall. All right, boys. In Detroit, Derek Lalonde got hired. There's a Stevie Y connection there. So Iserman 
likes his guy, wants his guy. Uh, I wonder if, uh, you know, the new 32 Thoughts podcast was talking about Detroit potentially weaponizing some of their cap and, and making a push, uh, you know, proving to their fans that like, hey, you know, we're trying to make moves to get better now because we have we have these guys. We have Mo Sider. We have Lucas Raymond. Uh, Dylan Larkin still has it in him. So, you know, I think this could be a fun year for Detroit. I'd, I'd be interested to see who they wind up going to get. Yeah, I don't know anything about Derek Lalonde. Do you guys know anything? He was a Tampa Bay assistant coach, first time NHL head coach. A lot of unknowns there. Anytime Stevie Y has put his name behind something, it has worked in full bore, whether it was in Tampa or with, uh, you know, going a little above everybody else with a couple picks recently. He's when he sets his mind to something, he's usually right. So I I don't know anything about Lalonde personally, but uh, 100% trust everything he's been up to for the last bunch of years. So he knows what he's doing. Smart cat. I I was going to say pretty much the damn same thing, Raj. I, I, I trust Steve Eiserman. Yep. He's good at his job. I feel like the, uh, you know, uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning are still winning championships because of him. Yeah. You know what I mean? You could be right. Like, damn, damn truth. Like, I trust Steve Eiserman. So if that's who he wants to hire, and man, I, I, I heard you allude to, could they go out and get like a Nazem Khatri? What a fantastic signing that would be. Yeah. For a team like Detroit who's moving in the right direction. Go get somebody who knows what it's like to go through all this bullshit. And by the way, one more other thing I want to say about Detroit, and this is totally off topic. Man, I'm actually kind of excited to see what Philip Sedin is going to do this year. He better. I think it's going to happen. I got a feeling. Shit or get off the pot time for that kid. I got a feeling. All right, San Jose hired their new GM just in time for the draft in two days, so... What a weird situation that's going on there. Uh, they fired Bob Bugner late into the offseason. I don't think they have a coach as of yet. They just announced Mike Greer today. Uh, I'm sure he's got a lot going on. He's got to navigate this San Jose cap mess that's going on. I don't know if Vlasic gets bought out. You're in for a long ride there, Greer. If uh, like There's a lot of money. Tomas Hurdle just got $8 million. Carlson for 11.5. Burns is making like 10. Vlasic's making 7. It's It's a mess. <laughs> nice way to start your uh, management career. When I heard some them talking about his like credentials, they're like, "Well, his brother worked for the NFL, so <laughs> why not make him the manager?" <laughs> I like he has no experience at all. Yeah, he could. He might surprise us, man. He's got a high pick this year. We'll see what he does. A lot of unknowns there too. This one's weird, man. And we've been talking a lot about it in the in the fantasy hockey Discord here. But Ivan Fedotov detained in Russia mm-hmm. days after signing with the Flyers. Military service being mandatory in Russia. But anyway, playing for Siska counts towards your military service, and he he's leaving the team to come to America. Uh, I can imagine how, you know, that's probably a salty topic right now. And they are um, happy about that, yeah. They're not happy about it. So he is not going to play in the NHL this year. He's going to the Arctic for, like, camp, and then he's getting deployed. So... This is kind of a scary scenario here. Like Shesterkin came out today and he said, he was like, I'm not going to Russia. I'll be in North America all off season. I wonder what happens at the draft with some of the Russians. Just a really scary scenario. Like it's so much bigger than hockey, but I don't know. I want to get your guys' takes on that one too. I mean, the people are legit worried that, you know, they won't be able to get out of the country. So Shesty saying, yes, I'm going to stay here because if I go back home, I might not be able to come back. 
that's a scary situation. These uh, guys that are about to be in the in the NHL draft coming up here, they might not be able to leave the country. Are you watching it? What on Thursday? Yeah, I definitely watched first round. Yeah, me too. I'm stoked for that one. All right, Anthony Duclair had surgery to repair an Achilles injury, expected to return mid-season 22-23. Tough luck. He's kind of in that same timeline as like Brad Marchand. Could be even later, too, so that's, you know, that sucks. Over in Vancouver, uh, your guy, Brock Besser, yeah. signed three by six and a half, 6.65, another three years for Best, so that's sweet. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good deal for both sides. He had just such a rough emotional year. He's going to be really strong this year. I really think he's going to be a 35, 40 goals, 75, 80 points kind of guy this year, like full Brock. We should finally see the Brock that we started to see in his rookie season. Nick Paul signs seven by three and a 3.15. Long, long, long contract for (laughs) Nick Paul. He looked good, though. Yeah. It's just, I, I wonder if this is going to be the next Blake Coleman, like... Oh, he could be good, but he'll probably be on the third line. So watch out. Who knows? And they they love him down there, don't they? Nick Paul does it all, man. Yeah. Uh, Casey DeSmith re-ups in pit, two by 1.8. So two more years of DeSmith. I'm all about that. I want someone as shitty as Casey DeSmith to stay on Pittsburgh because that way, like, you know, I don't want him going to a team that I like. Ron Hextall is so bad with goalies. You remember Steve Mason? You know what? That's weird that you say that because I was thinking about Steve Mason the other day uh, for some random reason. So remember how Steve Mason just used to let up like this, like dump in goals, like all the time, <laughs> like goals from oh, three man. quarters of the, <laughs> you know, of the way. And Steve so Mason bad. would just let them go by. Oh, my God. That, such, that's what I was thinking. Of. Such was, a goober. It's awful. Such a goober. Uh, Colin White gets bought out in Ottawa. I guess they're trying to navigate the cap ceiling or something like i don't know they have so much money why are they buying people out they must really not like colin white (laughs) strange strange thing um anyway he'll go out and get signed by somebody for a league minimum that'll be fine uh ryan mcdonough traded to nashville for philippe myers and grant mismash they're gonna give philippe myers another try in tampa ryan mcdonough just he's gonna be ryan mcdonough good at banks Free agent frenzy right around the corner, guys. I think that's the 13th. The draft is going to have some fun trades to go over and break down, as well as you know people that make really good picks, things like that. So I'm excited for this next week. It's going to be so kind of fierce. But let's get into our toolbox now. So like I was saying, we wanted to dig into like the mythology of, of how we do what we do. We're trying to teach Amanda Fish here. We want you guys to be better fantasy gm so we're just gonna we're gonna share what websites we use what stats we look at and how we come to our conclusions raj you picked a couple topics here and go about it do it i don't know what to say (laughs) do it go (laughs) just do it yeah yeah somebody in the discord had proposed the idea of kind of like you know showing off some of our secrets and strategies and that so i picked a couple things based around draft strategy you know drafts approaching mock drafts starting it's time to start thinking about how you're going to draft next year question somebody had was just like how do you decide on a first pick and and go from there so i'll run through a few things and i'll mention some websites and, and tools here but if you have number one take mcdavid i don't think there should be any 
talk of anything else, unless it's a weird league. But there's a chance somebody, I mean, even this year, he was 25 points ahead of the next person in fantasy. He's just, he's your most reliable option. So a lot of people are talking about Matthews at number one this year, and it's closer than it was last year, but I still think McDavid is unheralded and number one. I don't think there's a conversation there. No, I mean, Matthews, I think Matthews just had the best season of his career. He might have another one close to it again, but that was the season of his career. And he just was still 30 fantasy points behind McDavid. And then I, not not that I don't agree with you on that part, but I don't think that this was just a, you know, a once and done thing for Austin Matthews. No offense, Raj. That's not at all what I said either, though. What I said was he might have another something close to this, but he's not better than this. Like, this is a a legendarily good season, and he didn't come close to McDavid. So that's like the whole thing about the heart, and that's just, it's a joke. But at any rate, if you don't want to take McDavid, then you're probably not going to listen to any other advice. So the things you got to watch for, though, and the reason I would say McDavid is consistency. Like, there has been no time when ever McDavid has not been McDavid. I think there was, like, one stretch of three games, and everybody was like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? Yeah, he was pointless for two games, I think, and it was like... <laughs> what a bust. I mean, you're not going to go wrong with Matthews. I'm not saying that, but... At any rate, you need to make sure in your first round, the most important thing is you can't blow it. Like, I was doing all this draft research. If you blow your first round, it's really, really hard to recover from that. And there's certain things that you just can't predict, like McDavid got injured one year, or like this year, McKinnon was out for a bunch of days. And you can't predict that, but you can definitely cut down your your risks. So reliability, I think, is really important at number one. First of all, deployment, you'd expect to be top-notch. Anyone you're going to consider in the first round, you'd expect they're going to be the type of player that's going to be top-line, top-power play. No questions, yeah. It's worth checking because if they're not, or if they're like maybe PP1, maybe PP2, you should really take a hard look at why you're considering that player because that's pretty damn important. So you want somebody who's got that reliable deployment. I mean, that's another thing Edmonton's got is all they have is the big two or three players. They're not going to run two power plays. And if they do, it's going to be PP1 and they'll just change out a defenseman. And that's what they'll call PP2. So you want to ideally have someone who's going to have like those maximum minutes. It's not like you're going to find guys like McDavid who are playing 23 minutes a night, but as much as you can. And then the position thing. I mean, there's been so much talk of... Zero G, that's been a common thing. But the flip side of that was, you know, maybe you take Vasilevsky in round one or this year people are threatening, like maybe Shesterkin moves into the top spot. Whoever you think is the best in terms of goalie or in terms of defenseman, I would just strongly advise sticking to forwards in your first two, at least first two rounds. Again, you'd, you saw this year, like, uh, McCarr moved into basically top 10 in most leagues. Yossi was in the top 10 in most leagues. But that's really, again, with round one, are you fully banking on those guys being top 10 scorers? And I just, maybe... But I, I don't want any maybe in my first round pick. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That, yeah, that's a great, great little quote. No maybes. I'm not picking a Vasilevsky. I'm not picking a Makar Yossi. I just, it's just not, not the wise thing to, in my mind. So a couple other little things about that. I did some checking up on like positions and, and should you go right wing, left wing, center first? There's been a... A lot of sort of just a generally accepted thing over the last 
I don't know, at least five years or so of fading centers as well, because center depth is super deep and everyone says, oh, there's so many great centers. Well, if you look at the top 25 players this year, center was the least. Out of the top 25 players, 13 were left-wing eligible, 12 were right-wing eligible, and only nine were center eligible. You do kind of have to go with the hand you dealt. You're not going to you know, not take McDavid, not take Matthews or McKinnon just because they're a center, of course, if that's who's up next in your queue, you got to take them. But that means you should then start focusing on wingers right away. The last thing on that I would say is like a really common theme in the position end of things among winning teams was within the first four rounds, most winning teams had a top at each forward position in the first four rounds. So maybe they would throw in a D somewhere in there or two at one position, but most winning teams had a a center left wing and a right wing within their first four rounds, which gives you in terms of reliability, that makes it when you're going to set your lineups, if you have your elite players at different positions, you never run into that, uh, or less, you run into less trouble with deployment and your decisions get a lot easier. So I think the position matters a lot. Yeah, that top tier of right wing dries up so fast. Left wing too. But like centers, you can, round 10, you're you're looking at guys like, you know, Matt Barzell, which is still, you know, top line, top power play, which you're not going to find a left wing. You're not going to find that a right wing. Exactly. And I, th- I didn't quite finish what I was saying with that. I just trailed off as, as I've been known to do. Uh, but <laughs> uh, in the top 25, it looks like center's not the deepest position. Like I was saying, it's actually the least of the forward positions. But as you just said, once you get outside of that top 25, there's still lots of good centers left, but there's not lots of good, like the left wing and the right wing, especially you drop off hard. So, yeah, I would definitely focus on on strong forwards, particularly wingers heavy in the top five rounds. Especially dual wingers. Oh, yeah. Me, me like a dual winger. Dual eligibility is huge. And the whole fantasy hockey world's gotten wise to roster maximizing and stuff like that. And man, it cuts down on your losing points on the bench if you have more flexibility. And that's actually nice if you can find a dual eligible superstar, you know, round one or two player, because you're never going to bench that guy. You're never going to bench Leon Dreisaitl. And it sucks if you're like, but he has to play center. Then you're like, okay, well, that means even if you have three other good centers, well, but if you have your Leon Dreisaitl and he's a center left wing, now you can shuffle him over. And it just gives you more play all around, which is huge. And in terms of like tools, to figure this shit out. I like the left wing lock and daily face off in season for checking position stuff. Obviously in the off season everybody's speculating, but what I like about those sites in particular those two is just the visual. They're almost always different, which is wonderful. You check Twitter and then you check these different websites and they're all different, but the thing I like about daily face off and left wing lock is the way they lay it out with their little graphics and you can see the lineup on the page. So even if you disagree with what they've said, you can see the lineup in position and you can imagine how it might change or how you think it will actually go. I really like particularly daily face off for that, but it's worth checking on the platform that you're using because sometimes again, it's different between fan tracks and, and Yahoo or ESPN. And I believe everyone has the rule as far as I know that all the platforms will add positions throughout the year, but they won't remove positions, I believe is the... Yeah. Fantrax has been fucking it up lately. Yeah. 
Like everybody is losing eligibility like crazy. Yeah. I like ADPs for this. Like you're not going to find them on Yahoo or ESPN until draft season actually kicks off, which is why we're doing these Monday mocks is we want to be able to have kind of an ADP on hand. Real world. You know, this first draft, we're getting the rust off. We're keeping our drafting muscles from atrophying at this point with, you know, we had Demko. He went as the first goalie off the board. Like Duchesne was drafted in the third. A lot of really strange panic moves, which is we're trying to weed that kind of stuff out too. Our ADP, we don't want it to be weird. There's going to be a Vancouver bias as long as you and Joel are in it. So (laughs) that's the one thing I always account for. But, you know. That's something that's really important about the mock drafts too. And why I like mock drafts so much in terms of like, tools to get good at drafting is that's going to happen. You can look up all the numbers you want and some idiot's going to take Jason Robertson at number three, you know, and then, oh shit, well that throws off everybody's plans. So that's the one really good thing. Like, and as far as tools for drafting, like I think the number one tool is mock drafts, whether it's the little drop in Yahoo ones or our Monday mocks or however you do it. As long as they're not three-person drafts, those don't count for anything. But generally speaking, if you can get into real-life, real people in 12 to 16-team mock drafts or whatever, because you got to get used to that. I think that's something that a lot of people freak out. They get their their plans all laid out, and and then somebody throws a wrench into it with a dumbass move, like, you know, I'll take Demco at number or one. Or you or get something. sniped, and you got to adjust on the fly. There's, there's a lot of things that you need to account for. Um, yeah, you know, and you could try out different strategies through these mocks too. If you want to give zero G a shot and see what it looks like, do it, figure it out, get good at it. In terms of adjusting on the fly, like that's just so important. And this is where I know we even disagree a little bit on this, but I don't think actually we do is I'm not a big believer in setting up tiers where there aren't tiers. Like I often bitch about people setting up tiers. And what I really mean is I don't like it when people create tiers that aren't there. You know what I mean? Where most of the time, if you're looking over the top 25 left wingers, you're going to see a gradient. It's not like here's the top five and then there's a big break and here's the next five. You know what I mean? Sometimes that happens. And then absolutely you should mark off those tiers. But I don't like it when people just start saying like there's this imaginary line where all of a sudden you're tier one. And if you have half a point less, you're tier two. Like that just doesn't make sense. So, and that is the whole point is you don't have to put a line anywhere and you shouldn't if there's not a line there. So it sounds like you're talking about the value over replacement strategy, which takes tiers into account. That's the simplified way of doing it. If there's a tier, then sure, make a call. But my point is there usually isn't. I will stand by that till the day I die. Like if you show me a season where you have nicely laid out tiers and like levels of players that actually go like that, and I will say that's pretty fucking rare because it just rarely happens. It rarely, rarely happens. I think we should both do another thesis. I will try to prove that tiers exist and you will try to disprove. No, that's not what I'm saying. I said some when they do, you should use them, but usually they don't and people force it. And that's all I'm saying because I've seen too many times people like make these separations where there aren't separations in in, in players. Here, no, I'm I'll make an argument right now for that is you don't know that he's only 0.1 less than the other guy that's in a tier until after the season happens. So I think it's important to group these goalies like these are the three goalies I will take if available. And then you say, okay, you know, sniped one and two, you still got the third one. All three get sniped. You move to a different position, different tier, whatever. You know, I think it's important to have that 
small range every time your pick is coming up. Like I don't do that. I feel like it's especially that way with goalie and D, TJ. Goalie and defense, because you have your your top-level defenders, your your Kale McCars, your Roman Yossis, your Victor Hedman. And you say to yourself, if these guys are not available, I'm not drafting a D. I'm going to move to right wing. You know what I mean? Or if my goal, if my goalies weren't there, you don't get one of those top, you know, Shesty or Vazzy. Or, this could be a whole episode right here. Tears or no tears? Tears when they're there. Like this year, for example, in fantasy, Roman Yossi was in a, if you want to make tears, he was in a tier by himself. And then Makar and Hedman were pretty close. And then after that, it was a gradient from there on down. I think there's a, there's another tier behind that. It's like, you know, Shea Theodore, Seth Jones, like that group is a tier. And I just I just don't think that. <laughs> All right. To stack those strategies, I would say that you shouldn't be picking any of those defensemen anyways. True enough, yeah. To f- end my rant, <laughs> and that's it. As I'm not saying don't use tiers. I'm saying don't invent them where they don't exist. Is, is what I was saying. Be smart. Yeah. Tears for fears. Tears for fears. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. I, I, I chose unsustainability and sustainability to dissect and kind of um, show how I do it. I think the first step is understanding a few stats and how their use comes into play when you're using league averages or career norms. Stats like shooting percentage that I won't necessarily care about league averages. I'm just looking at what that specific player, his individual career average is. IPP, you know, that usually there are different levels, Like, but I'll get into all that. First, I'm going to talk about how IPP relates to sustainability. Forwards, 66%, defensemen, 34%. That's this last year's average. League average, 54. IPP is kind of tricky because it is a sliding scale here. IPP, you use, I like to use primary points as well to kind of vet or disprove my findings here. I use Jordan Kiru as somebody that I find as sustainable. I think he is, you know, I like, I like his stats. It's a traditionally high IPP. It's 81.5, but then you start to dig in almost 80% of his points were primary points, goals, and primary assists. So there's not a lot of variance there. Um, you know, you use that IPP, look at his primary points percentage, his past two years of shooting percentage, right around that 15% range. I think that's who he is. On the flip side, uh, I've got Devontae's just based on secondary assist rate, which is higher in defensemen. So there is that caveat right there. They're distributors, right? So they're up at the blue line. They spend a lot of their time making those passes. Uh, they can see a lot more. Devontae's shot a little bit high. He had 13 goals this year. Um, and then I look into on-ice shooting percentage, which is another stat that that one you don't have to break down into forwards and defensemen. It's this, you know, the average is the same league-wide defensemen, forwards, and no matter how you break it down, really. 8.35 was average. When I get to Nashville, man, holy shit, I'm worried about Nashville for next year. But Devontae's his on-ice shooting percentage was 12.35, which is high, but then he does play with some of the best players in the league. We're talking Kale McCarr, Nathan McKinnon, Miko Randon, Gabriel Landeskog. So again, a sliding scale, the same way we found with IPP, like Jordan Kiru is 80% when 
a forwards average is like right around 65, but you know, he generates a lot more offense. So his IPP is going to flow through him. He's not getting, you know, luck through other ways, but Devontae's going back to him, his on ice shooting percentage, way too high. IPP is 46, which is like his career average, but it's, it's high for a defenseman. 42% of Tay's points were primary. That means that 58% of his points were secondary assists. And that, starts to worry me a little bit like you know that with on ice shooting percentage that's like canonically high i think it's safe he would be my bet for regression next year just based on ipp and a couple red flags like that i'm using natural statric here hockey reference two very good websites to see these things colorado scores a ton he's not on the top power play he had a 57 point pace there's just a few red flags here, and and I don't like it. And the, there's those things against him. Uh, shooting percentage is pretty cut and dried. I think for in terms of sustainability for a forward, it's 10.2. For a defenseman, it's 4.25. Uh, league average, 8%. You know, we've talked about this one for years. There are certain players that shoot 18% to bring it. You know, he shoots 17, 16%. He's just better of a finisher than most people. Guys that play the net front are going to have higher shooting percentages because it's a higher danger shot that you're taking. With this one, I just I just use career averages. If it's way outside career averages, watch out. On ice shooting percentage, we talked about this one a little bit. It's going to be the same for forward and defensemen. Uh, with elite lines, you're going to see like 10 to 12%, sometimes 13, but you really have to have a group of elite finishers to get this done. Like, you know, Connor McDavid has an on-ice shooting percentage of 13 year over year, but guys like Pujarvi won't. You know, you really have to watch out. Uh, if that number starts to flirt with 11 or 12, if it's a fringe player, Justin Falk here, I would bet on regression to a career average, more specifically, just his average in St. Louis. New players, new on-ice shooting percentage. You got to take that into account too. So I think he was like 12.6 or something, and his average in St. Louis is nine, nine and a half. So... You, you would probably be wise to bet on that one. I love Dauber's Frozen tools for this one. We already talked about natural statric, hockey reference. <laughs> All right, it's the offseason, and I'm still going to bug Zach and Raj about Nick Schmaltz. He went on, you guys remember that two-month rampage that he went on where he was scoring at, like, Connor McDavid levels? Yeah, he was tied with McDavid for, like, a month and a half or something. Okay, so during this period, he put up... 40 points in 31 games. He shot 29% during that period. That's glaring. Uh, he finished the year with an 18%. That's 31 games where he shot like almost 30 and his average dropped all the way down to 18%. Before the rampage, he was shooting 3.7%. And we talked a lot <laughs> about how it was unsustainably low and that he'd probably get a slight uptick in points. It turns out it was a huge uptick in points. It, we were betting on that being unsustainable, but just ride it because it doesn't mean impossible. It just means unlikely. After the rampage, 10% shooting, but he still had 12 points and 15. Is there an actual stat of variance? Because that's one thing that about averages, you've got guys like this year aside, you've got guys like Shifley who have their average and that is how they play every night. And then you've got a guy like Schmaltz who's got his average, but then he's from McDavid to fucking press box. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. is there, is there one stat that has accounts of variance from, from the average? Well, it's, it's a different kind of scenario, but I like expected goals for that one. You see if they're getting 
into the dangerous areas where their shots are coming from. The problem with that is expected goals is not a predictive stat. It just tells you what they're what what they should have. Mm. And you could say, yeah, it's going to regress to the mean, but it's it's less likely that expected goals levels out than shooting percentage. Expected goals is just it tells a story. It doesn't like there's no foreshadowing to it. It's not a predictive stat. It helps paint the picture if if they're getting lucky or if they're taking good shots, like getting into the right areas. I wish there was like some sort of variance, but as you can see, like 3.7 before the rampage, 30, you know, it went up a thousand percent. It's ridiculous. And I guess, like, I mean, a, that kind of stat would only really even arise a few years into somebody's career. Like we know by now, Fiala, he has a really similar trajectory. It seems like every year, right? His, his pattern is similar. Um, it's exponential. I guess you just have to look at, at past years and, and see if there is a trend. It's hard, even if there was like, you know, standard deviation or something where, you know, between these two ranges is sustainable. Like that's what the beauty of hockey is. It's so random. (laughs) You can try. We do try to say that, you know, this should come back down to earth or this should pick back up, but it's hockey. Some players go an entire year unsustainable. I have a whole thing on here, like uh, William Carlson, his debut for the Golden Knights shot 24% on the year. 43 goals the next year less than half that 1819 we saw Braden point put on 41 goals at 21 percent but the giant red flag here is he had a league leading 20 power play goals where he shot 40 percent on the power play the next year 60 percent decrease in power play goals and a 40 percent drop in overall goals so this this goes into like unsustainable doesn't mean it's it's not possible because it will happen all year guys like Kyler Yamamoto in 1920. 26 points in 25 games, shot 25% on the dot. The next year, I don't even know if there's a number high enough to to like percent drop. Like he dropped. Just trust me on that one. Alex Kaloran shot 20% on the year in 1920, 26 goals, 43% drop the next year. 20, 2021, TJ Oshi went like a half goal per game. And then it went down by 50%. 21-22 this year. Matt Duchesne, Chris Kreider, all fucking year, I was saying that they were unsustainable. (laughs) Kadri. Immediately, when you think about these guys, you're not like 50-goal, 40-goal guys. Chris Kreider, I I see so much Braden Point in his stats here. His career high for goals is 28 goals. This year, he had 26, just on the power play, where he shot 40%. Now, he's a net front guy, so that, like I said, those positions have a higher share of high-danger goals. You get a little bit of lenience when they're... Shooting percentage is out of whack, but this is 40%. 52 goals all day. That's almost double his career high. If Braden points a comp here, we could probably bet on a huge fall in goals for Kreider next year. But then, like, that's that's hockey. Super random. You know, it's a good bet, but it's not a sure thing. And that's, that's kind of where all this comes down to. You use all these stats to try and bring you closer to the most likely answer. But you're not guaranteed to be right. Duchesne. And this is where I, I was telling you guys that I'm worried about the the Nashville Predators next year, like all of them. Duchesne was the first Predator ever to hit 40 goals, and they had two 40-goal scorers this year. Duchesne had 43 goals, 18.8 shooting percentage. Ryan Johansson gets 80% of his points from assist, was seven shy of his career high in goals. I think he had like 26. He shot 22%. Forsberg shot 18.6 for 42 goals, a career high. They're on ice shooting percentages. Remember, I said that an average is right around eight and a half. Ryan Johansson, 14.4. 
Duchesne, 14.16. Forsberg, almost 15. Nashville is full of regression candidates, negative regression here. And I don't think this means good things for Yossi. It's the first time ever that they had 40 goal scorers and Yossi almost hit 100 points. So, you know, we're talking about tiers. I think there's a little adjustment. Yossi had, what, 96 points or something crazy like that? It was insane. Insane. And, And, you know, you had 20 points higher than his previous high. And he's like like a perennial Norris candidate. He had 96 points this year. And that's one good thing about Yossi. He'll get his points. Everything bottlenecks through him. He drives offense, which is crazy good. But, you know, you're not going to have, what is that, 85? But Duchesne isn't going to do that shit again. I'm not saying they score zero, but that's 85 goals that you probably probably had a good part of. Yeah. Uh, and then Rijo, I mean, that's, that's 100 goals right there. Even if you have 60% IPP on that. Even 50, that's 50 points just from these three unsustainable guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he lose 20, 25 assists next year just from those guys' regression. I, I do I do yeah. buy Forsberg for the most part, but those other two guys are just... And that's the thing, is Forsberg back. So the other two guys are like huge regression candidates, and you might not even have Forsberg. So, I don't know. Sketchy. Don't know. So with sustainability, we can use... You know, what we find if shooting percentage lines up with their career averages, if IPP is somewhere in a healthy range, if on-ice shooting percentage is pretty healthy, these are things that are going to tell you in season whether or not a guy is overperforming, underperforming, or what have you. And it's going to help you make buy low, sell high decisions. It's going to tell you whether or not to pick up or drop a player. There's a bunch of other factors that play into it. Uh, I remember Oliver Bjorkstrand randomly just stopped shooting. And, you know, being a typically high volume shooter right there, that's that's why it's not happening. But it doesn't tell you why he's not shooting or that he's going to start shooting again. But it explains what's going on. Uh, and it's it's hard. There's so little trustworthy, you know, predictive metrics in hockey. We can only use averages of past data and hockey being as random as it is. It's hard. But, you know, this is what we try to use. <sighs> Expected shooting percentage isn't is an interesting one. You take their shots and their expected goals and you work out a shooting percentage from there. And I think there could be something between actual shooting percentage and expected shooting percentage. That's interesting. Like a differential at that point that could tell you, you know, plus or minus, what is this guy doing? Is he over or under shooting and something I'm working on. And yeah. And I mean, you take all of these numbers from the last two years and they're all basically garbage anyways because everything's been so variable. It's like, it's a fun game we're playing here. We got breakouts and busts. How do we determine this shit? Yeah, I wanted to look through things with a with a breakout or bust kind of perspective. And, you know, in general, I'm using the same websites that you guys are. I do like to throw in a cap friendly in there every now and then, uh, especially when it comes to breakouts or busts. You know, who's going to be on the freaking team next year? Who are the UFAs? Who's coming into a UFA season? You know, that plays a part for me in some of these things. A lot of these players want to play really good in that UFA year or even in an RFA year where they get a little bit of leverage. If I'm looking at things from breakouts, there's a couple of different kind of like bullet points that I like to go over. First would probably be just the trending stats just over multiple years. So, you know, I'll look up 
a player stats for 1819-1920. You want to see kind of like a progression. I, I think that only makes sense. You want to see a progression in time on ice. You want to see a progression in shots and, and stuff like that. You want to see more of a steady shooting percentage. You don't want to see a lot of up and down with that. So you look for those trends, but you want to see that everything is kind of in key with the time on ice. If they're getting more time on ice, are the other surrounding stats also going up? So that's just a really easy way to kind of decide who I like for breakouts by just looking at some of those, you know, not underlying stats, but some of these just in your face stats. Because I feel like a lot of the underlying stats, you might not get the full perspective of it because if they're only out there for eight, nine, 10 minutes a night at the beginning of their career, they're trying to fit so much bullshit into this you know, finite amount of time that you're not going to get the whole answer. Um, next, I'm looking at opportunity. What kind of opportunity, whether it's good or bad, are you getting from each of these players this upcoming year? So, I mean, you're looking at line mates, and that could be line mates gain, line mates lost, everything like that. Again, ice time plays a new uh, another part into it. Are they going to a new team? Let's say Kadri goes to goes to a new team and he's thrust into a you know into a line one role. Now I don't really see that happening because I think a team that's going to want him is going to be trying to bolster their line two. Still, he's like a perfect two C. Still, let's you just use that as a possibility. His line mates likely are going to maybe go down a little bit, but at the same time. Maybe those other line mates that he's getting, they're getting a bump where he's getting maybe a little uh, a little bit decrease. So maybe those players around him are going to get that increase that might bring them up into a, a breakout. Or even something as simple as, is a player going to get power play time this year? Or maybe last year they weren't. Maybe someone's getting shipped out. They're going to get moved up and, and they're going to get the power play time. So far, trending stats and opportunity. And finally is the visuals. I will never not preach this because it just is me. 100% of the time, I will always attest to watching hockey. And I always preach of actively watching hockey. Underlying stats, they definitely matter. They really do. Don't get me wrong. But it's the decision-making in the now that can really show me what a player can be in the future. Have you ever watched a hockey game, guys? And Because I know that I do it. Have you ever watched a hockey game and you see a player just make a play that doesn't work, but you say, man, that was actually a good idea. I like the idea. You know what I mean? Did that, those kind yeah, and of, even the flip side, too. Yeah, so maybe it didn't work this time, but maybe it will next time. If you're making the right decisions in the now, where I can say, hey, that was a nice chip off those little boards right there. Like that was a good way to get that puck out of the zone. It's those little things that really turn into points later in somebody's career. You might not think about it, but all of that stuff adds up and it goes in the bank for that player. So those are the kind of ways that I look for breakouts. I do have, you know, quite a few people that I think are have a chance at breaking out this year. And, you know, watching hockey is a big way that I do it. 
you see somebody progress. We've talked about the Devils and how we have watched these young players progress into the into the players they are. And sometimes it's simply as you know, as simple as getting thicker. You know what I mean? You need the you know, and an eighteen year old kid needs to put on some pounds sometimes. You know what I mean? And and that's why people don't break out until they're in you know early to mid twenties. Give me some of these thick boys. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you throw a you throw a five nine, a hundred and sixty five pound kid out onto the ice in an NHL game. It's gonna go a little bit different when they get a couple of years older and they at least you know weigh a one you know one ninety or something. Get this kid to the and yeah, a little sturdy. That's why I was scrambling to try to get Jack Hughes uh, towards the start of this year because he was prime example of uh first pick overall it was just garbage but you know it was just a matter of time he just needed to grow up a little bit and you saw you're starting to see that with Lafreniere and- so I my mind immediately went to Carter Verhage when you were talking about like deployment and stuff if, if somebody gets thrust into deployment that he got thrust into right so top line with Barkov and if it works and it sticks like that's that's a breakout waiting to happen you know Rob Thomas put everything together this year Jesper Bratt, like there's some really good stories out there in terms of breakouts. So you learn from what has happened and then you look for the same things in the future. Oh, JT Miller, right? Like yeah, his deployment sucked in the Rangers and then it got a little bit better on Tampa. They gave him a brief shot with some real deployment in Tampa and he had great numbers and the Tampa was just so good. There was just no room for him. And that's why when he came to the Canucks, everyone was like, wow, wow, man, that's what a terrible trade. Jim Benning, you're an awful manager. And then uh, six months later, everyone's like, okay, that worked. Just, that doesn't always happen, but there's certain guys like that where if you follow their... Uh, per 60s when their per 60s do come true you know like you were talking about that a couple of shows ago how sometimes per 60s do pan out when the deployment happens sometimes sometimes they don't but definitely worth a shot yep watching hockey is is good you know you see those good things but then you also see those those dumb moves that you know if you're playing for a coach like trots or you're playing for a coach like um tortorella you know those kind of moves don't sit well with with coaches like that and you wind up in the press box i remember travis connectney got healthy scratched because he gave up a four-on-one once there was a scramble it was like what's going on with connectney why like why if you watch that game you would know so it helps and uh, i think it was charlie o'connor that picked it out he was like this is probably the play that got him benched he gave up a four-on-one you see those good plays you see the bad plays you're like all right this guy's probably moving down the lineup okay this guy's probably moving up last up bus Nobody likes bust, but I mean, being able to spot a bust before it happens can really save you a lot of grief and really not cause you to lose a draft or, you know, lose a year because of a draft. You can do irreparable damage to your team. If you see Matt Duchesne this year, this past year, and you say, man, that's a third round pick, a second round pick, if I ever seen one, you know, <laughs> Uh, you might do irreparable damage to your draft, my man. First up, believability. I don't fucking believe you, Matt Duchesne. That's that's just that's just flat out. I don't believe you, man. Smoke and mirrors. Believability. And will this player live up to their draft potential with the year that he had? And he's just a perfect example. His draft stock is going to rise. You know what I mean? It's inevitable. 
people will draft him higher than he previously got drafted. Are you willing to play that, pay that price? Will he live up to that draft potential? Next up in believability, are they going to be worth, insert whatever round you want, are they going to be worth that fourth round pick, that fifth round pick, that first round pick? And then finally, again, with believability, can they do it again? Do I believe that Roman Yossi is going to get 96 points again? Because I'm actually, so in, in our home league, I have Roman Yossi and I have Victor Hedman. I'm pretty stuck on the idea that I'm going to keep one of these defensemen as one of my keepers for next year. And as much as I want to say, yeah, I'm going to pick Roman Yossi to be my keeper, part of me is still leaning Hedman because I don't know if I believe that Roman Yossi can do that again. I believe that Victor Hedman can continue to be that rock, and I understand that Yossi is fan-fucking-tastic, but at the same time, do I believe the rest of the Preds? And I think the answer is no. Uh, thoughts? Hedman, before this season, like you know what you're going to get. Even on Yahoo, they ranked him 29th. He finished 28th. <laughs> you know, he's that. that's Hedman. Um, I think our ADP was 28th. Hedman's is that. Uh, whereas Yossi, I think, has the higher ceiling and much lower floor. So that's what goes. Both of the things you just said totally tie into what I was saying about if that's going to be your number one D, I would I would take Hedman over Yossi for the uh, sustainability, if you want to call it that, repeatability over the whole season. Believability. I believe believability. in the Tampa Bay Lightning more than I believe yeah. in the Nashville Predators. I had a note uh, I missed earlier just about don't believe the hype. There's always huge hype around exciting rookies and breakout seasons. And it's almost always false. You hate exciting rookies. I love watching them, but definitely not taking them as any primary players. It just doesn't work. What do you guys consider as a bust? Is it like a, like 12? Like, is it a round below like you draft them at 12 they finish 24 is that a bust i think it's a sliding scale as you get further down like if you take someone in round one and they end up putting out round three numbers mm -hmm. i think that's a bust but if you pick someone in round 15 and they put up round 17 numbers i think that's yeah round or they put up you know round nothing numbers but yeah i shouldn't have drafted them they're really not a bust it just didn't pan out you know what I mean? For a 15th round pick. So I do agree with that. I think that there's a sliding scale. If your first round pick doesn't work out and he's, you know, you only score 70 points instead of the 95 that you were banking on. Yeah, that's a bust for that year. So in the, in the draft, there is a, a bustable zone and a bust free zone. <laughs> Like, you can't bust, like, round 10 or past, you know, like, round 11, if they don't pan out, that's kind of, like, whatever. Like, McKinnon, his ADP and all of his preseason rankings were three overall, and he finished 30th. I would call that a bust. Definitely. That's a huge drop on somebody you're depending on. But I think his was more health-related. Oh, sure. I don't think the reason matters. What matters is you are expecting the third best player in the league, and you got the 30th best player in the league, and... That's tough, especially for your, your first center. Like at what point of the draft, like if if, so if your 13th round pick doesn't work out? Just doesn't work out. Is that a bust? There is no bust when it could, uh, at round 13 and, you know, up to, you know, your round 21 pick, 
You know, you might hit gold with a 13th round pick or a 15th round pick, but if they don't work out, then they don't work out. Um, Okay, so next up, as far as busts go, I got health and history. So that kind of is a perfect segue into, you know, what you were just talking about with Nathan McKinnon. Do they have a history of, you know, getting hurt, suspended? Do their stats waver too much from year to year? If you have no idea what's going to happen, there's players where, boom, they're shooting 17%, and then they shoot 5% the next year. And then the year after that, they shoot 15%. And then they shoot 6.5%. Like, there are players like that. So, like, what kind of history do they have? Is it an up-and-down history? If so, it's not somebody that I want to draft too high. I'm going to let somebody else have the headache. And I, I feel like Chris Letang is, is similar to that. We used to always kind of put him on this pedestal for getting hurt all the time. And in the past, I would say, two years, he has kind of buffered that and and been incredibly viable and stayed out on the ice and stuff like that. But for a while, I wouldn't wanted to draft him just because that's always what I saw. Man made a glass out there being hurt all the time. Luckily, he's proved me wrong, but I think that's a good you know example for that. Last up, again, this always happens. It's opportunity. It's the negative part of the opportunity. Are they changing a team? So we're talking about Nazim Kadri. I don't think that Nazim Kadri is going to be on the Colorado Avalanche next year. I really don't. Everybody sees you know and heard his name this season. He's going to get drafted higher than he did last year, for sure. But if he goes to, you know, a place, you know, like a Detroit, you have to expect his points to go down a little bit. Now, they are good and they are young, and he would be a fantastic piece to that puzzle there. I don't think that his stats this upcoming year are going to match what he gets drafted at if he goes to a team like that. Are you changing your team? Are you losing a line mate? Just any change that would, you know, negatively affect play or possibility of a, re- a repeat of hor- uh, repeat performance. Yeah, watch out for things like not to say that it's going to happen, but I heard, uh, you know, Jacob Chikrin could be. He's rumored to maybe go to Columbus, and that made me think of like uh, Brent Burns and Eric Carlson a little bit, and like not enough pie to go around that kind of thing hypothetical situation i still think zach Wierenski is power play one but you know if if somebody good comes in and could compromise your power play like if jacob chikrin comes in do you now have more of a reason to go closer to 50 50 on the power plays because you have that solid you know presence you know things like this so even if you do have a guy like nazim kadri going to detroit is bad for nazim kadri but it's good for like everybody else so it's all encompassing. So if you you know if you have a Zadina or something, he could break out next to a Nazem Kadri, even though Kadri could bust. I don't know if you mentioned in there, but uh, does apply to Kadri too is uh, contract years. It's real, you know, right? Like if Kadri gets his eight and a half million or whatever he's after, I have a strong feeling his effort and urgency level is going to go way down, especially now that he's got a yeah, cup. Yeah, he he has a cup. He's about to he's about to get fucking paid he might give a little more about or you know care a little more about that in-ground pool that he's putting in as opposed to whether or not he scored two points tonight or or just one desperation's real man desperation is real when it comes down to crunch time like it makes that difference he showed it this year (laughs) 
he had something to prove. I'm a red blooded man. I, I know all about desperation. I don't think he takes a back seat. I like I don't think players take a back seat, but I do think that they might play extra hard in their contract. Of course years. they do. And and I, I I don't know. I don't think they get the bag and then just like, all right, you know, that's but that. At the same time, if it were you, would you not so so when he got that thumb injury and it's like, hey, you're gonna come back, you know, possibly sometime during the playoffs and stuff like that. Would you not be chomping at the fucking bit to get back out there in the playoffs to to say, hey, I need to put my stamp on this. I know I, I helped out in the regular season, but I need to make these playoffs partially mine. That's so so all I'm getting at is if it's a, a contract year, you're going to say, hey, I got to get the fuck back out there. I got to go make that money because they're going to remember that. I wanted to add to that. You know, I don't know if you have yearly reviews at work, Zach, where, you know, you get your, your cola raise and possibly a promotion, that kind of thing. For me, when when yearly reviews are coming around, I'll put like, you know, two months prior, I'm going at 110%. After I get the promotion and the extra money, I'm still doing 110% for a while just to prove that, you know, it was the right decision. And maybe, you know, I'll find a groove and maybe I can roll at 100% for a while after that as soon as I get accustomed. But I'm not like going to 75% after I get my money. It's just a it's just a little extra when it comes down to crunch time, you know. It, yeah, I'll go 110% for sure. When you're doing 110%, you have to make sure that everybody sees it. The rest of the time, <laughs> yeah. you can yeah. kind of go at that, you know, uh that 70% pace, but you got to turn it on when yeah, they, that, when the when Monday, the fucking Tuesday lights are pace. on, baby. When the lights are on, you got to make sure everybody sees that 110%. Yes, sir. Is that a wrap? That's a wrap. All right. So as always, we are we're in the fantasy hockey Discord. You know, we went an hour tonight. It's not enough to share every little nuance of, of fantasy hockey and strategy and things like that. So we're in there. There's a thousand other people in there that are happy to chime in on their uh, strategies and tips and tricks and all that. You know, I'm going to put this episode up on the Twitter. I'm going to link to all of our resources, the other podcasts that we listen to, just everything that could possibly make you a better fantasy player. That's the goal here. You know, we don't care if you get better because of us. We just want you to be better. So, I mean, you know, we're trying. I'm not saying we're not trying or anything, but like, <laughs> I'm going to link a bunch of our favorites up on the, uh, up on the Twitter and just get the word out. You know, everybody wants to be the most informed fantasy hockey player out there. So let's do it. We are going to be back after the draft, you know, hopefully some, some high octane stuff happens at the draft. I'm really stoked for that one. In the meantime, we got that fantasy hockey discord. I'm telling you about, we got the Twitter at FHF hockey. If you want to chirp us there. Uh, and until then mock drafts, mock drafts every Monday, it's going to be fun. So we'll dissect the draft after the draft. And hopefully there's some trades to talk about. Chuck Fletcher said the number five is off the table for Alex to brink at, but we had no, no problem last year trading our first round pick for fucking wrist aligning. That's that. So have fun, guys. Love you. Be safe. Have a good draft. Congratulations to our boy, Heinze, who's in Costa Rica getting married. Hey. Like he was having a hell of a time. Oh, yeah. Congrats, buddy. Hell of a time. Catch you next time, guys. Love you. Love you. Love you.